Today on Categorical Imperatives, we are going to talk about what might happen if the Supreme Court is to overrule Roe v. Wade. Hey, greetings, and welcome back once again to Categorical Imperatives. As always, I am your host, Lockheed Liberal, and I do want to thank you all so much for joining me here today. Now, if you are new to the program, I would especially like to welcome you. This is a podcast where we're going to be using legal theory and moral philosophy to discuss current events related to law, politics, and culture. Now, as I think most people probably know, uh, the case of Dobbs v. Whole Women's Health was recently heard uh, in oral arguments before the Supreme Court. and while we won't know until June what the court's holding in that matter will be, one thing we can be almost certain of is that it's going to have to go one of either two ways. They are either going to have to uphold the right to an abortion as defined in Roe and Casey or overrule Roe. I do not see any middle ground, and I have yet to find another legal scholar who can make a compelling argument that this case leads any real room for nuance and compromise between those two binary positions. Now, in my next video, I want to talk about what some of the likely consequences will be if indeed Roe is upheld. Uh, what will it mean for the future of the legal conservative movement? And what will it mean for the future of constitutional originalism? Today, I want to talk about what happens if it does indeed get overruled. Now, I just want to point out before we get into the substance of the video that uh, we are going to be covering uh, a number of important topics here today, uh, including implied powers, the Commerce Clause, the Necessary and Proper Clause, uh, the Court's Opinion in Roe v. Wade, Casey v. Planned Parenthood, and Gonzalez v. Raich, as well as federalism and states' rights. Now, these are all topics that are all of great interest to me, and these are all topics that I have covered profusely in both past episodes of this podcast, as well as in a number uh, of articles in various law review journals, uh, as well as with the Libertarian Institute, the 10th Amendment Center on Substack, uh, the Social Science Research Network, and many more. So I will be having a bunch of links to both past episodes and articles of mine that touch on any of those topics that we're going to be talking about here today, uh, if they touch on them in a real substantive way. I will have a link to that. You can find all of those down in the description. So there's a lot of good sources to go and uh, look into further if any aspect of this is really uh, of interest to you. So, if Roe is overruled. Now, of course, the consensus on the left seems to be that uh, if this happens, abortion will return back to the dark ages of only seedy back-alley abortionists, and that the country will be overrun with millions of incestuous rape babies every year, and that the only people who possibly have anything to gain from this would be the fat cats behind Big Coat Hanger. Now, what I do think is the more interesting of the two predictions is what the conservative belief of that result of overruling Roe would be, and that is that they seem very sure that this would return the issue of abortion to a matter of states' rights. 
Now, while this position is more logical than the last assumption about what overruling Roe would mean, I actually don't think it's any more correct. And that's mainly what I want to discuss here today. Why I think the right is misguided in assuming that this will just simply become a states' rights issue. Now, absent Roe, current Supreme Court precedent likely gives the federal government considerable power to either restrict or protect abortion rights, but that precedent could potentially be limited in ways uh, advocated by, of all people, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas, uh, certainly an unlikely potential savior of abortion rights, considering he is one of the most likely votes uh, for overruling Roe. Now, last week's oral arguments in Dobbs v. Jackson Women's Health show that there is a good chance the Supreme Court will overrule or at least severely limit abortion rights long protected under Roe v. Wade and the subsequent precedents. Now, if Roe does get overruled, many people, as I said, assume that the abortion policy will simply be left to the states. Some hope that in that event, the temperature of the culture war over abortions might be lowered, that both red and blue state majorities could live under their preferred regimes. People who strongly oppose a state's policies on the issue might be able to vote with their feet for alternatives, including crossing uh, state lines to get an abortion, returning home after it's done, things like that. But that possibly happy-ish scenario might well not occur. The reason is that the federal government could potentially get into the abortion regulation game. Current Supreme Court precedent leaves considerable potential scope for such regulation. Now, that precedent, in turn, could potentially be limited or even reversed. However, uh, if so, abortion rights advocates would certainly owe a debt to, again, as I said, possibly the unlikeliest of all saviors for them, uh, the conservative uh, Supreme Court Justice Clarence Thomas. Now, in the immediate aftermath of a reversal of Roe, the states really would be in control of developments. There is currently very little federal abortion legislation on the books. Red states would enact new restrictions and reactivate old ones that have been blocked by Roe. Blue states would continue to permit abortion and perhaps even expand its availability. Red state residents seeking abortions would just increasingly try to cross state lines and go to a more liberal state. But this state of affairs could and almost certainly would change if Congress decided to act, which I imagine they probably would do. In my view, the text and the original meaning of the Constitution do not give Congress any power to restrict abortion, uh, with the exception of those performed in the federal territories, such as in the District of Columbia, and perhaps those that might involve crossing state lines to access a commercial provider, but current Supreme Court precedent strongly suggests otherwise. Now, this is mostly under uh, cases such as Gonzalez v. Raich from 2005, where the Supreme Court held that Congress's power to regulate interstate commerce includes the authority to restrict almost any economic activity so long as it has a substantial effect on interstate trade. 
And economic activity is defined very broadly to include anything that possibly involves the production, distribution, or consumption of commodities. That definition will allow the court to use the Commerce Clause to uphold a federal ban on the possession of marijuana that had never crossed state lines or been bought or sold in any market, even within an interstate market. A person grew and smoked their own marijuana, and they were still in violation of the Commerce Clause. Now, nearly all abortions do involve the consumption and distribution of commodities, such as medical supplies. In addition, most abortions qualify as economic transaction because doctors and nurses and others are paid to perform them. One could argue that a federal law banning or severely restricting abortions isn't really aimed at regulating interstate commerce, but the true motive would be to restrict abortion regardless of whether it involved interstate transactions or not. But much the same can be said for the marijuana ban upheld in rape and other federal law enforcing the war on drugs. They go far beyond targeting actual interstate drug trade and instead forbid even in-state distribution and possession of any illegal narcotics. Now, if, as is likely, the interstate abortion market expands in the wake of a Supreme Court decision overruling Roe, Congress could claim that suppression of interstate abortions is necessary in order to enforce restrictions on those that involve crossing state lines. Now, if abortion is banned in State A, but legal in State B, that creates an incentive for residents of A to cross into B in order to get an abortion, even if the feds enact a ban on such crossing. That ban might be more effectively enforced if abortion were illegal in B as well as A, obviously. Thus, the argument will go Congress has the power to restrict abortion within a state because doing so can help suppress the interstate market in abortion. Now, the Commerce Clause rationale for abortion restrictions might not apply to abortions that are performed on a non-commercial basis by staff who provide their services for free. But such cases are only a small percentage of the total. Moreover, in Rach, the court upheld the ban on Angel Rach's possession of marijuana even though the producers had, in fact, provided to her for free. The theory was that even completely non-commercial production and distribution of an illegal drug could impact the interest market. Now, these kinds of commerce clause arguments might strike some readers as a kind of bullshit sophistry that give lawyers a bad name, and I sympathize with that reaction. I really do. I hate these arguments myself, and as you will know if you go listen to my video on Gonzalez v. Rage, I think it is a terrible. In fact, honest, ironically, Rage is kind of an abortion of a decision, constitutionally speaking. It, it's a total mess. It should be overruled. But this is exactly the kind of reasoning that did indeed prevail in 
reach and provides a constitutional rationale for the continued federal war on drugs. Now, in addition to trying to directly regulate abortion by using Commerce Clause powers, Congress could also try to indirectly, by using its Spending Clause power, condition grants to state governments. For example, it could enact legislation restricting various types of health care grants to state governments unless the latter ban or severely restrict abortion. These kinds of conditional spending restrictions are subject to a number of constraints under current Supreme Court precedent. The amount of money involved cannot be so large as to be considered, uh, quote, coercive. And the conditions must be sufficiently related to the purpose of the grant. And they have to be clearly stated on the face of the law, not just inferred by the executive branch. Now, the Trump administration ran afoul of all three of these restrictions during its campaign to cut off federal funds for sanctuary cities. Now, I won't go through all of the potential arguments and counterarguments here. Much depends on the exact scope and wording of the legislation at issue. Nonetheless, I think a carefully drafted conditional spending restriction on abortion rights could potentially jump through these hoops. Then, blue states would face a choice of either losing some of their federal health care grants or imposing abortion restrictions. Now, the spending, aclo- spending clause approach is, of course, less threatening to abortion rights because states could potentially avoid the conditions by refusing the federal funds tied to them. In practice, such refusable federal funds are very rare. But a hot-button ideological issue like abortion might, and in fact almost certainly would prove to be an exception to that rule. I'm sure many blue states, especially relatively wealthy ones, might tell Uncle Sam to take his money and stick it up his ass, and his abortion restrictions with it. Now, what applies to conservative efforts to use federal power to restrict abortion likely also covers liberal efforts to protect abortion against red states. Congress could potentially use Commerce Clause reasoning to justify laws preempting state regulations of abortion. It could be potentially condition various federal grants to state governments on the abolition of state-level restrictions on abortion. So, of course, this above discussion is all based on the assumption that the current Supreme Court federal uh, federalism precedent remains unaltered. However, that might not happen. Now, in the case of Gonzalez v. Carhart in 2007, the Supreme Court upheld a federal restriction on late-term partial birth abortions against individual rights challenges. Justice Clarence Thomas wrote a concurring opinion emphasizing the possibility that the law in question exceeds the scope of congressional powers under the Commerce Clause. Now, Thomas previously 
wrote a forceful dissent in Gonzalez versus Rage earlier in the year. Uh, he reiterated key elements of his critique in that decision and urged the Supreme Court to reconsider and limit it. Now, back in uh, a few years ago, I, I explained why Thomas's position could well lead him to vote to strike down federal abortion restrictions. And I built on uh, an earlier post by Cornell Law Professor Michael Dorff. Uh, I, that will, of course, also be linked down in the description below. Um, now, it's possible that one or more of the other conservative justices could even join Thomas's reasoning on that particular ruling. And one can then envision federal abortion restrictions getting invalidated by a coalition of conservative justices who believe that they are genuinely beyond the power of the federal government and liberal justices who object on individual rights grounds. Now, it is also possible, though much less likely, that some liberal jurists could endorse the federalism argument against these restrictions. So liberal thinking on constitutional federalism shifted a good deal in recent years, and some of that shift may go well beyond what we could call fair-weather federalism brought on by opposition to the Trump administration's policies. It is also possible that either liberal or conservative justices who think of clever ways to limit the scope of rage, uh, even if it doesn't get overruled completely, might take the opportunity to do so. But, uh, as I had previously explained, abortion rights plaintiffs challenging federal restrictions will need to specifically raise the federalism issue if they hope to get Thomas's vote. He has a strict policy of not considering constitutional arguments that are not specifically raised by litigants. Some conservative lower court judges do have similar views. More generally, abortion rights advocates would need to make federalism issues a regular part of their armory, which might cut against their ideological grain. But immigration advocates have successfully made a similar shift in sanctuary cities' cases. And there is no intrinsic reason why the pro-choice legal community cannot follow their example. So while this issue is a complex one, it's also possible that abortion litigation could lead courts to tighten enforcement of constitutional constraints on conditional grants to state governments. I, I have uh, suggested some ways that could be done. Uh, I will put a link to that below in the description. Now, federalism arguments could also, of course, be raised by state governments and others challenging potential federal laws protecting abortion rights against the states. In considering their litigation strategy, conservatives and liberals alike may need to decide whether they care more about preserving the autonomy of their states or about retaining the power to control the other side's states when their preferred party is in power in Washington. Now, of course, all of the above assumes that the Supreme Court will indeed 
overrule or severely limit Roe v. Wade, and that Congress would take advantage of that shift to enact new abortion legislation. Neither outcome is certain, especially the latter. The court might yet preserve most of Roe in some form. And even if it does not, federal abortion legislation might be forestalled by various political factors. But I think the possibility of federal abortion legislation enacted in the wake of Roe's overruling is at least a plausible one, and it deserves some serious consideration. So for supporters of both abortion rights and tight limits on federal power, uh, one might hope that it would lead the Supreme Court justices and others to reconsider some of their past awful decisions, such as Gonzalez versus Rach, and if nothing else, at least limit their scope. All right, well, that is going to uh, do it for me here today on Categorical Imperatives. I want to thank you all so much for joining me. Uh, I will be back in a couple days with another video talking about, uh, as I said, what will happen if the court indeed upholds Roe uh, in the upcoming case. So for now, uh, if you like this video and you're not subscribed to the channel, take a second to do that uh, so you always know when I put out my new latest videos. Uh, let me know what you thought down in the comment section. I do always love to hear uh, what you guys think about the videos. Uh, and then, you know, the whole thing, if you like it, hit that little thumbs up button. If you hated the video, hit that thumbs up down button, uh, you know, whatever. And if you want to uh, support the channel, uh, there are links down in the description to uh, like Patreon, PayPal, places like that, where you can go and put your financial faith behind the show. So if you are able to do that, I would appreciate it. If you're not able to do that right now, I certainly understand. I still appreciate you coming by and spending some of your time here today with me all the same. So uh, I guess until next time, this has been me, uh, Locking Liberal, or Categorical Imperatives, talking about abortion rights. And of course, as always, Delenda S. Carthago.